Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. As Israel continues to bombard Gaza this week, and as the death toll rises from the last three weeks of awfulness in the Middle East, one person is likely looking at events from afar and gaming out how to cash in, and that's Russian President Vladimir Putin. The war in the Middle East has thrown up several complicating factors for the war in Ukraine. There's the issue of Western support and attention, and whether some of that could be diverted. There's also the issue of how countries in the developing world, the so-called Global South, view these two wars and arrive at connections that are quite different from how the White House sees it. We're also in the thick of the fog of war, and a lot can go wrong. This is the moment when other dormant problems can suddenly become active. My guest this week has really perceptive thoughts on all of this. She's someone I consider among the world's best experts on Russia. Fiona Hill served as Senior Director for Europe and Russia on the National Security Council. She was Deputy Assistant to President Donald Trump from 2017 to 2019, and then an impeachment witness against him in 2019. She is the author of There Is Nothing For You Here, and the co-author of Mr. Putin, Operative in the Kremlin. Remember, as the name of this podcast suggests, you can watch these interviews live on our website, foreignpolicy.com slash live, and it's also in video there. If you use the code FPLIVE, you can get a discount when you check out. For now, let's dive in. Fiona Hill, welcome back to FP Live. Oh, thanks so much. Great to be with you. Our pleasure. So Fiona, I thought we'd just begin with the Middle East. How do you think Russian President Vladimir Putin is looking at what's going on? Well, I think there are several aspects uh, to this um, in terms of uh, Putin's uh, reactions and attitudes. I mean, we're here to talk about Ukraine, obviously, and the ongoing war. And I think that Putin thinks that this has actually now uh, presented him uh, with an opportunity to really turn the tide of the war in the sense that uh, increasingly the United States and also European supporters of Ukraine are going to be very much distracted by what's happening in the Middle East, uh, in large part because of the nature of their relationships uh, with Israel, uh, but also because of uh, their own uh, domestic uh, constituencies. You know, looking, for example, at about 100,000 people in protests in London, uh, most recently in reaction uh, to uh, what's happening um, in Gaza, in places like Germany, uh, you know, where there is an often a lot of questions about the, the future of immigration in the country and already a backlash there, and where Germany um, is also, you know, worrying about the impacts of France, you know, for example. I think that uh, Putin now thinks that this is going to be uh, very much undercutting the support for the war in Ukraine, uh, support for the Ukrainians, that is, in the, in the war where, with Russia, and that this will um, start to uh, really uh, give an impetus uh, to already, you know, debates we've been having here and elsewhere about how long does this war go on, how long does our support last, because this will be um, also a distraction. And the question about whether uh, the United States and other countries will be able to um, also lend support to Israel, um, including, of course, for the United States uh, military support, will this, you know, really kind of deplete uh, United States ammunition stocks, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Then there's another dimension here, is that Russia and Putin have already been factors in the Middle East. When you look at uh, the uh, Israeli-Russian relationship, the Israelis have often called Russia our neighbor to the north because of Russia's involvement in Syria. 
And, you know, we are hearing a lot of questions about what role Russia may or may not have played uh, in the events leading up to October 7th, just as a interesting uh, point of fact, October 7th was Putin's birthday. Uh, and in the you know Russian circles, everybody always talks about things that happen on uh, Putin's birthday, you know, playing out in his favor. That may seem a little trite, but it is really quite astounding, you know, the kind of the way that um, you know Putin now has shifted uh, his stance on relations with Israel. If we look um, across uh, the board for the last several years, there's been a major rapprochement to Putin, certainly for the last decades, uh, between Russia and Israel. You know, Russia, of course, in the Soviet period was renowned for its stance on support for the PLO. We know that Hamas and many other you know, leaders that had previously been um, in Russia uh, and, you know, the uh, interactions uh, there, you know, for example. But Russia had been extolling uh, its relationship uh, with Israel because of the large Russian speaking uh, population in Israel from emigration from the former Soviet Union, not just Russia, of course, but also from Ukraine and Central Asia and Belarus, uh, for example a strong relationship on high tech, a lot of Russian oligarchs having dual Israeli and Russian citizenship, um, and uh, a lot of investment from Israel coming into uh, the Russian high tech sector. And Putin was always very careful uh, to stress how Russia uh, was a major supporter of its Jewish population, but of also Israel itself. Uh, lots mm -hmm. of meetings being held in Israel, for example, and Russia playing a role behind the scenes, in fact, of supporting Israel in the Abraham Accords uh, with other Middle Eastern countries, and also um, even being supportive of the Israeli-Saudi rapprochement that seemed to be uh, on track. Not because the United States was uh, brokering this, in fact, the contrary to that, but because it saw a vested interest, even uh, up until quite recently during the war mm. uh, with Ukraine, because a lot of Russian oligarchs and Russian businesses have been moving to the Gulf, to the Emirates, you know, the Russian sovereign wealth fund being investing there, and that patterns of trade uh, with uh, for Russia moving the Saudis, uh, you know, to the Middle East, the Saudis giving Russia a break on energy, you know, for example. But the big shift has been on Iran, mm -hmm. and and that is also, you know, as a result of the war in Ukraine, of course, because Russia has increasingly drawn closer to Iran, not just because of the provision of drones, but Iran as a regional player. And now mm -hmm. I'm starting to hear from Israeli contacts that they will see Russia, no matter how this kind of ends up, more in the enemy category than in uh, the frenemy or friendly category moving forward, because there is a great deal of suspicion in Israel that perhaps you know Russia had some kind of hand in this. And lots of conspiracy theories out there. I don't think we have any evidence uh, to this, and there's be a lot of reasons to say that you know Russia would still tread cautiously. But there is, you know, uh, on the one hand, again, Russia's belief that this will now drag the United States and other uh, European supporters of Ukraine down. And now that this will kind of completely sort of change uh, the calculus uh, in the Middle East and perhaps Russia's role mm. there. Right. So, Fiona, there's a, there's a lot here. And I, I want to unpack um, some of what you've said about the Middle East. It clearly is all connected. But I'm going to put a pin in that and we'll come back to the Middle East in a bit. I want to get for now to, I guess, what we had originally planned to discuss, uh, at least more directly, and that's the ongoing war in Ukraine, now in its 21st month. And when we last had you on FP Live a year ago, we were anticipating then a spring counteroffensive by Ukraine. That became a summer one, and now it's a fall one. How do you think it's going? Well, look, um, I think one of the problems that we had, and, and we discussed this, um, as you you know, rightly said uh, earlier, there was an awful lot of hype about this counteroffensive. 
And you know, I think as a result of that, the sort of perceptions that were generated, not by the uh, Ukrainians themselves, really, uh, although, of course, they were also you know, constantly talking about the fact that they were gearing up to this, but certainly in the media and in the rest of the discourse has, has proven to be counterproductive because uh, there was so much riding seemingly on this that if uh, the it was almost like some kind of playoff. If uh, Ukraine didn't succeed in um, some regards and then it didn't kind of proceed to the next phase. The Ukrainians have been trying to change the narrative on this, saying that this is, you know, one phase in an ongoing war. A lot of course military commentators have been very clear on this, that you can't just have always the decisive uh, battle. And as you said, it kind of morphed from the spring into the summer, into the fall. Now, um, many military uh, commentators in Ukraine elsewhere are talking about the spring or, and certainly some kind of continuations of um, hostilities in, um, in winter. I think in, uh, what we've uh, fallen victim to here is uh, really overhyped uh, expectations for what it was really conceivable for Ukrainians to do. We haven't really been having a very sensible you know, conversation about the limitations of the kind of ground war that the Ukrainians have been engaged in, because we've seen that the Russians have really literally entrenched themselves. And we have the, the visions of World War I uh, trench warfare that we were talking about the last time, but of course there's miles and miles hundreds and hundreds of miles uh, of uh, anti-tank uh, defences, landmines, which has made it very hard going, you know, for the Ukrainians to basically be, be able to penetrate the offensive lines. I mean, both Ukraine and Russia have had a hard time going on the offensive, uh, where they've uh, both been, you know, very effective at basically defence. But there's one area where the Ukrainians actually have had some success because they haven't been confined by some of these constraints. And that's been in the Black Sea, because there's been... Uh, a capacity there for uh, innovation and in drone warfare attacks on uh, Russian Black Sea fleet. They've broken, I, I would say, the Russian dominance of the Black Sea and the blockade. They've been very creative on getting shipping in, you know, for uh, the grain facilities. They've menaced Sevastopol. Um, we've seen them, you know, with drone attacks into um, uh, Crimea and also into uh, Russian territory proper. And we've now seen recently the removal by Russia of some of their shipping. Uh, and their the naval fleet from uh, the Black Sea, uh, uh, bases in Sevastopol, uh, but then a discussion of having another Black Sea port for Russia over the longer term in Ochamchira, in uh, the disputed territory of Abkhazia uh, and Georgia, which of course creates a whole set of other issues on the other side of, of the Black Sea here. But that actually is significant because it shows that Russia is worried about its position uh, on the Crimean Peninsula in terms of its military position. And, the, Russia, and the, the Russians are aware now that the Ukrainians can actually do some damage there. So it's a difference in the, in the naval side of the conflict from the land where you know, very much things are bogged down. When you say that, you know, how are things going? I think there's, you know, on the one side, there's the military aspects of this. And the other side, there's a the kind of political aspects of that, the battlefield in politics. And I would say that that's where things are not going, you know, well uh, for Ukraine at all. Because there was so much expectations riding by many observers on this counteroffensive and the feeling that, you know, Ukraine has not pushed through to targeted areas that they laid out, cities like Melitopol and Mariupol, you know, for example, that they haven't made a lot of headwear in Kherson and Zaporizhia, the, you know, the, the regions that, uh, you know, Russia um, had really taken and had been rolled back uh, in early uh, phases uh, of the war. But the fact that they haven't achieved that, uh, you know, sort of suggests that Ukraine isn't uh, moving forward in the ways that uh, we wanted them to.
And when I say we wanted them to, because a lot of uh, debate here in the United States and places like Germany, you know, and elsewhere is how long does this war go on and what's the end game? And that is very detrimental for Ukraine because there's already, you know, discussions in all of the journals and you've been picking up at it in foreign policy and, you know, in the media about, well, how long should the United States and other countries be supporting this? We're seeing a diminution in uh, support in polling uh, for long-term uh, offensive and more people asking about how do we define victory uh, for, you, uh, for Ukraine in terms of an end game? What about territorial dispositions? What about negotiations? And that, of course, starts to constrain Ukraine's room for maneuver and boosts Putin's you know, idea that things are moving in his favor, even if they actually are not on the battleground. But in that battle for um, information and for public opinion, Putin, um, you know, adding on to what's happening in the Middle East, Putin is feeling more confident, I would say now, than he would have been several months ago. It's interesting from everything you're saying, Fiona, that there's uh, your assessment of what's going on in the ground. And I was struck by how you said Ukraine has actually made some advances that, you know, perhaps isn't getting enough attention. And so one can assess uh, the state of play of the war. That's one thing. But it seems like the the media game, uh, the public perception game is a different one. And I'm just lingering on that here because it seems like somehow expectations were overhyped. Based on those overhyped expectations, Ukraine has underperformed. But all of that is a distraction in a sense because there's a dissonance between those two assessments, the, the public perception and what's going on in the ground. If we take away the perception for a second, and, and I, I buy everything you're saying about how perception matters and how it affects funding and support and all of that, but purely in terms of what's, what's going on on the ground, were one to sort of focus on that and project forward you know, what is your sense of where it's headed? Well, look, unfortunately, um, the sense is what my earlier sense was that this is going to be a long grind, um, you know, unfortunately, um, for Ukraine. I mean, part of it is a numbers game and uh, on, on two different fronts here. One on manpower, obviously, because Russia has um, a lot more people that they're literally throwing at this uh, war. You know, there's a, a report, I think, in the press today that you know, Russia's prison population has drastically declined, you know, despite the fact we've got a political clampdown here during the war, you know, they can't push prisoners out to the front, you know, fast enough. We've seen, you know, over time that Russia has just, you know, been uh, ra rather nastily creative in expanding uh, the conscription uh, timeframes, 18 to 35, you know, they've lost a lot of manpower by people fleeing, you know, the country, but, you know, they're kind of keeping on pushing people towards the front. And they've also put this on the second front on manpower, but they've put their economy into a wartime economy. So they've ramped up um, their um, industrial production, which is also significant for the Russian economy because the largest uh, uh, workforce outside of the public sector in Russia is in the military industrial complex uh, where you have like seven plus percent of, uh, of the labor force working. So it's actually kind of in a way you know, in, inflating uh, the success of the Russian economy as well, because you've gone into this kind of wartime production of ammunition uh, and, equivalent, uh, and equipment. So that's also kind of giving a sense that, you know, kind of Russia is doing better, you know, than uh, one would have expected, you know, on the economic front as well, because there's so much of a of growth based on uh, the, the armaments and, uh, you know, kind of other equipment uh, uh, production. 
So, you know, from Ukraine's point of view, of course, Ukraine has, um, you know, a lot less manpower uh, to uh, to take to the front. And, you know, that, that's obviously why we're being very cautious about talking about casualties. The Russian casualties are really high. I mean, I don't have the exact uh, numbers right now, but certainly in talking to most of the military experts, you know, we don't have a full sense of the figures. There's all kinds of different ways of passing this, you know, in terms of um, actual numbers of deaths, but in terms of people maimed, you know, injured, uh, you know, in the conflict, this is uh, pretty considerable as well. And over the longer term, this will be very detrimental for Russia. It will have demographic and economic and other social impacts as well. But of course, you know, for Ukraine with a much smaller population base, much smaller, uh, you know, male uh, demographic, this is uh, very difficult. The Ukrainians are also picking up on their military equipment production. But of course, you know, they were a major arms manufacturer before the war, but of course, you know, they've depleted their stocks. You know, the big question here, this gets back to the question of, you know, how they're doing over the longer term, actually, if not just if the United States keeps up support, but if European countries step up production, uh, which they're starting to do, and Ukraine steps up its own production, Ukraine could be in a pretty good shape, but it's not going to be immediate. And so that is kind of the problem over the longer term. You know, Ukraine looks to be in reasonable enough shape, but if that support continues, because, you know, also Ukraine is having a hard time generating revenue. Um, you know, the, the Russians have, you know, obviously not had uh, devastated infrastructure. They're, they're, they've adapted their economy to a wartime economy and Ukraine keeps getting pummeled, you know, all of its uh, critical infrastructure, business infrastructure, you know, etc. So Ukraine is very much dependent on uh, basically financial flows from the United States, from the West, IMF, you know, et cetera, to keep its economy going as well. So, you know, for, look, for Ukraine, it's been extraordinarily difficult. But on another hand, Ukraine has prevailed in, in the sense, of course, that we have to stress that Russia's special military operation, Putin's idea of taking over Ukraine and getting to capitulate has failed. But, you know, the question is that uh, Russia is still, you know, sitting and occupying large swathes of Ukrainian territory, not just Crimea, and uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, but also in Zaporizhia and Kherson. And the difficulty is going to be in dislodging, you know, Russia from that territory, you know, over the longer term. And then the, the other element of, um, you know, why uh, for Ukraine this matters so much is about the Ukrainian population, because there's a lot of discussion, you know, about, well, what happens to uh, the territory that's occupied, you know, by Russia. Russia has annexed it, declared it's part of Russia, we would not recognize this under, you know, any circumstances. Uh, Zaporizhia Kherson, you know, the question about Donbass and Crimea was always on the table, you know, going back to uh, 2014 in the beginning of the conflict. But the Russians have made it clear that there is no such thing as a Ukrainian in their view, so that any Ukrainian living in that territory immediately is forced to become a Russian in terms of getting passports. But there's not going to be any autonomous region for Ukrainians inside of these territories. It's getting absorbed completely into uh, Russia. And that creates, I think, a real high bar for Ukrainians in deciding, you know, where they go in this conflict over the longer term. You know, and it strikes me over the summer, the Wagner group uh, and the whole sort of kerfuffle around uh, Prigozhin dominated the news cycle um, for about a month or so. And now that the dust has settled on that a little bit, where do you see the impact that it had? How do you think Russia's military now is doing, uh, given that they're sort of directly controlling those old forces, but without Prigozhin? What's your sense of how much Wagner moves the needle um, in the state of play right now? 
Well, that's a really interesting question. And, you know, as you've just already pointed out, um, you know, the Russian government was part of what precipitated the whole uh, crisis uh, with Prigozhin and Wagner. Was the um, attempt by the Kremlin to put the Wagner group under um, the direct command of uh, the Russian military? I mean, Wagner was a supposedly off-the-books uh, operation that gave, you know, uh, Russia what my old boss, John McMaster, used to call implausible deniability, you know, in the <laughs> fact that um, it was always, we were really well aware, it was run by the Kremlin, but they were trying to pretend it was kind of the Russian equivalent of Blackwater or the French Foreign Legion or, you know, whatever, that it was a kind of an autonomous entity, you know, working under its own direction. It never was. Uh, and it was, as it turns out, not even off the books because Putin, over the course of, you know, the mop up operations after the Prigozhin putsch, now said, you know, outright that um, the Kremlin was funding Wagner and the Prigozhin, you know, kind of group. So all of that pretense, you know, and implausible deniability became you know, kind of very difficult uh, to continue with. But it's also very clear that the, the Russian, um, you know, the Kremlin and uh, Russian strategists have benefited enormously from the tactical advantages that an outfit like uh, Wagner, you know, brought to them, including using uh, prison uh, forces and, you know, the operations that they've had, you know, outside of uh, Russia itself, a kind of flexible version of rangers or special forces, but in a, you know, completely uh, different guise so they could step back from them and, you know, not take responsibility for things that they've done. But really the whole uh, Prigozhin putsch forced the Kremlin to have to take responsibility and to own up. I mean, the, the, the big thing that Prigozhin did, apart from, you know, shock uh, the Kremlin and shock everybody else about, you know, how, um, I would see low real support is, you know, for the system because he got pretty far in his march to Moscow. He shot down, you know, plane, you know, they engaged uh, with Russian forces, but the, the images of him on his move there as a kind of Robin Hood, you know, popular hero, uh, Bonnie and Clyde, you know, kind of uh, figure, if we think about it from a, you know, US uh, perspective, an influencer, people taking selfies with him, you know, on the way there, really showed that people are not, you know, massively in support of the establishment. And, and even of Putin himself, that there's a you know superficiality to a lot of support for the war. And of course, Prigozhin told the truth. He basically said that the war was started as a fool's errand, uh, that there was no threat from Ukraine, that continues to be really not that much of a threat from Ukraine and NATO, etc. Uh, but that, you know, now that they were in the war, it was being mismanaged. And the whole important part was to win. He was reflecting the sentiment of large swathes of, uh, I think, the Russian population who thought the war was a mistake, but now that they're in it, that they wanted to win it. And he, he was basically saying, you know, that Russia was not winning and that, mm. you know, this was actually a real problem for Putin. So Putin has now, you know, had to try to turn all of uh, this around. I mean, I would say that he's, you know, mocked up um, uh, reasonably effectively uh, the aftermath of uh, Prigozhin, but we'll see, you know, because there could still be, you know, undercurrents of support there for Prigozhin, you know, it just shows, you know, the, the, the possibilities in Russia of putches and coups and, you know, kind of uh, grassroots movements, which has always been there, you know, throughout Russian history that hasn't entirely gone away. So Putin has to, you know, be really now more attentive to domestic dissent. And, you know, we've seen all kinds of activities and actions since then, you know, the ridiculously extended prison terms of people like Navalny, you know, who, uh, as a mm. charismatic alternative, you know, to, to Putin and, and many others. Um, uh, as well. But we can also see that Putin is now very much focused on the external public game as well, undercutting and, you know, we're getting more reports of this. The administration has now, you know, revealed a lot of the uh, external 
um, Russian uh, propaganda and other influence operations that Prigozhin also admitted that he'd been part of before, right? So that implausible deniability is, <laughs> has also gone there. Prigozhin said, yeah, yeah, that was me, you know, internet um, research agency and all the influence operations in 2016. And now that, you know, the government's taken more direct control of that as well, uh, even in, you know, not denying any of it and kind of pushing ahead to undermine public opinion in the United States and elsewhere in support of Ukraine, but also uh, in faith in our own governments, which all become intertwined. So I would say that, you know, Putin's gone even more on the offensive uh, since uh, the uh, Prigozhin episode, you know, than he was before. Mm. You know, Fiona, one sort of through line uh, or undercurrent in our discussion so far is public perception. And I, it's striking to me that on both sides, that Putin really cares about shaping or manipulating public opinion. And I think on the Ukrainian side, it is so clear from the dissonance you were describing between how things are going on the ground and how the media or the public can sort of see expectations soar and then feel disappointed. And it seems like that too is a, a roller coaster of emotion and expectation in the way in which it plays out in the public. And all of that has an impact on funding, on support, on a whole range of narratives. I'll add one more complicating factor to the mix here. As we look ahead to 2024, much of the world is going to the polls in 2024. I mean, it's the United States, of course, but I think it's also five of the world's six biggest democracies have elections in 2024. As you think about that, the the state of the world with so many people going to vote with the importance of perceptions and the propaganda element of this war. How are you thinking about the two sides, Ukraine and Russia, and how they're thinking about where this ends? Is it too soon to think about that? Or is the thinking on both sides adapting at this point? Well, I think Putin thinks this ends when, um, you know, we in the United States and in the West just, you know, give up Ukraine. And that's actually, I think, how he's been considering the issue all the way along. It's that for him, Ukraine would have failed a long time ago uh, had it not been for US military support, increasingly NATO member uh, support, uh, and also um, you know, the financial economic uh, support that you've got from a lot of the European countries, which has been quite considerable. And you know, if you look at in terms of per capita support and um, in terms of weaponry as well, the Baltic states have far, you know, outstripped uh, the United States, Poland, you know, Slovakia, Finland, all kinds of other countries really coming to Ukraine's um, assistance. You know, I mentioned Slovakia and Poland there, you know, deliberately because, you know, it actually looked during the recent Polish elections uh, that Ukraine uh, was becoming a domestic uh, political issue. Uh, with uh, the Polish government sort of stepping back from some of the critical support that it had because of domestic backlash, uh, not just on inflation or questions of spending, but on uh, you know Ukrainian grain coming into the Polish uh, agricultural market, but also the perception that Poland was making itself weaker by you know some of the uh, weapons uh, transfers to Ukraine when you know it also might have issues. And of course, in Slovakia, we've seen uh, with the uh, election of Fico, uh, somebody who's been notorious for being uh, you know pro-Russian uh, and uh, you know very uh, opposed to all, all of Slovakia's uh, support for Ukraine. And there's been you know a large influx of Ukrainians in Slovakia working there even before uh, the, uh, the the conflict with the uh, Ukrainian refugees. 
a kind of a feeling that you know Slovakia needs to look to itself as well. We've got Germany, uh, where they don't have national elections next year, but they do have uh, what people are now seeing as very important regional elections in three states in Brandenburg, Saxony, and Thuringia, where the alternative for Deutschland, the far right party, is polling at about 30, 35 percent. And you've got this new left party of Sarah Wagenkrecht that's just been set up, which is also um, uh, uh, promoting itself on the basis of a lot of skepticism towards support for uh, Ukraine. You've got a million plus Ukrainian refugees in Germany that there's a big debate about, you know, their role in society, backlash against uh, immigration, you know, overall, not just against uh, refugees. You know, so as you're suggesting here, um, you know, Ukraine is becoming a domestic issue for many places as well. And so for Putin, he thinks that that will be, you know, the key for him for undermining that uh, that support and for increasing the negative public perceptions of uh, of the war in terms of pushing Ukraine, you know, into negotiations that would be on Russia's terms. Now for Ukraine, of course, that uh, any kind of endgame, they want it to be on their terms and rightly so. You know, because as I mentioned before, we can talk about all kinds of international territorial arrangements that, you know, never recognize uh, uh, the de jure uh, possession of Ukrainian territories by uh, by Russia. And there's always been uh, these discussions about uh, Crimea and Donbass, that was part of, of course, the Minsk Accords, you know, discussions about Crimea. But, you know, they've uh, Russia, of course, has annexed uh, all of those uh, territories from 2014, but also Zaporizhia and Kherson. And as I've already said, there is no intention on the part of uh, Russia of having the Ukrainians act as some kind of autonomous population. Russia has said those populations are Russian. This isn't going to be an East Ukraine, like there was an East Germany and a West Germany, or a North and South Korea. These are going to be Russians. They are going to disappear as a separate people. There's not going to be some autonomous you know, um, provision for them in any way. This is going to be Russian territory through and through. So for Ukraine, that makes it very difficult to also start to think about how they would find a negotiated solution uh, with Russia. So the Ukrainians are pushing, obviously for an end game that involves guarantees of their security, has some um, uh, addressing of these issues of uh, the territorial disposition of Ukraine and how to ensure not just the sovereignty and territorial integrity of the country, but the people um, of uh, these Ukrainians, millions of Ukrainians who've been living in those territories and, you know, kind of what happens to them uh, in the future. And then also, you know, the issues of, uh, of reconstruction. So we have the questions about EU membership and how um, Ukraine moves towards that. But we have the big um, debate about NATO. And, you know, the United States and Germany, you know, in particular, have made it clear that they're not keen on putting uh, the issue of membership for Ukraine on the table um, at the NATO summit coming up here in Washington um, in July, that they want to kind of leave that, you know, for another phase, you know, perhaps even, you know, having that leveraged in some way in um, future negotiations. So from the Ukrainians' perspective, this is a mess. And so, and it's very difficult for them, and they're very well aware of that, but they really need to have, you know, a, a bigger diplomatic effort on their behalf, not just, you know, more emphasis on what's happening on the battlefield here to really position them. I think Putin really feels at this point that everything is trending in his favour.
And you are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website, foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance, in addition to a range of other benefits, including our magazine, of course. Sign up. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. Hey, it's Cameron, host of FP's weekly economics podcast, Ones and Twos. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I've got the podcast for you. Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast features great guests like Sami Khoury, head of the Canadian Government Centre for Cybersecurity, and Gulsana Mamadieva of the Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine. Each episode explores the lessons of digital transformation from leaders all around the world. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes, or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. So um, I said we'd come back to the Middle East, and I want to do that now, but in a big picture way, because as you've been describing, Fiona, everything here is connected. These two wars also have a connection. And I want to bring in uh, a couple of our subscribers. In fact, many have been writing in with a question um, that goes somewhat along these lines. Um, And I'll cite Joanna Weschler here and also Tim Reed, uh, two of our subscribers, Um, Joanna says, do you think that the Hamas attack on Israel and the ensuing events might boost Putin's West against the rest narrative and affect the level of political support Ukraine has so far been receiving from countries around the world? And Timothy Reed goes a step further. Um, He says that there could be or there's an emerging strand of whataboutism um, that the global south is pointing to because when they see the u.s give israel um, an additional 14.3 billion dollars of aid um, and they've pushed neighboring countries to make peace with it why should they align themselves with the west they're seeing a sort of dissonance between u.s policy towards israel um, and its policies in the russia ukraine conflict how are you seeing that well, look, I think both um, of um, uh, this subscribers are right. Um, and I think that they've framed, you know, these questions um, in exactly the right way. Um, you know, if we think about uh, President Biden's speech linking Ukraine and Israel together, uh, and of course, linking them in terms of you know, financial uh, support from uh, the United States in Congress, it might be good congressional politics, but it's perhaps not good global politics. And it has actually now tied Ukraine, you know, um, very um directly uh to um in many respects the fate of what happens next in the middle east but particularly in the eyes of you know i, I think all of us hate this term the global south you know uh, well let's just say certainly middle east actors but actors also in africa and latin and you know in south america and you know elsewhere in asia where there was a great deal of skepticism in any case about the ukrainian case you know i think we we had a mistake at the very beginning in the way that this was being portrayed as you know, after the invasion uh, of Russia in 2022, as a battle between democracy and autocracy, a lot of the world didn't buy that either. Uh, and you know, instead of really kind of emphasizing at that point that kind of violation um, of uh, national sovereignty. Now, of course, the whataboutism 
that we were hearing from the rest of the world was, well, what about the United States invading Iraq, invading Afghanistan, you know, the United States, you know, doing this, that and the other. How is this different? Now, the Ukrainians then tried to move into a different arena, which is now where this becomes very problematic by what's uh, uh, taking place right now in the Middle East. The Ukrainians tried to make common cause with uh, many of the countries of the global south, which they recognized that they would have to do, you know, in the course of all the UN uh, resolutions, uh, in, in terms of presenting this as um, a uh, post-colonial conflict. Ukraine is a colony um, of Russia, the Russian Empire, and of the Soviet Union, you know, basically trying to re-liberate itself. So basically the imperial power coming back and, um, you know, basically trying to uh, retake territory, which is actually accurate. The problem is, in um, other parts of the world, there is no conception that European countries can be colonized. And I've heard this over and over again, and I was last week at a conference where this was like, all Europeans are colonizers, they're not the colonized. I would say, well, talk to the Irish about that, you know, talk to the Ukrainians and others, or, or the, the Baltic states, but that just, you know, people don't buy that. And also, you know, Russia, and this is why Putin has been so effective, as the continuating or successor state of the Soviet Union is seen in places like South Africa and many others as well, as the, uh, their defender and supporter against apartheid, and also uh, the, the country that underpinned the national liberation movements, Mozambique, Angola, you know, we can go on and on there, and also seen in that context in Latin and South America as well, not just in Africa. Mm. And of course, there um, is a, 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 a different thinking about colonialization, right? And I'm sure that many people listening uh, to that, you know, tend to think of colonization as something that happens overseas, not that happens in contiguous territory. So, you know, the, the Russian expansion of its empire uh, in, uh, in and around, you know, Eastern Europe and Central Asia, you know, and kind of elsewhere isn't seen as the same as uh, Europeans going to Africa, going to India, you know, and elsewhere. Now, China um, had some of its territory taken away by Russia during that expansion, but you know, that's another question of China trying to play, you know, also in this same you know, role as being the country that was predated upon and humiliated, you know, for a whole century in the 19th century and is, you know, walking a fine line on this. But Putin has utterly capitalized on this, calling the Ukrainian Nazis, calling them rabid nationalists, you know, kind of the, the US and European support has been something of a liability for Ukraine because Ukraine is seen as just another territorial dispute, another European spat. And the Ukrainians have failed to enter into that national liberation, you know, post-imperial, you know, kind of post-colonial uh, discourse because they're white Europeans. And, you know, now with um, being lumped, you know, together on uh, terms of spending bills, but also by their own statements uh, with Israel, and, you know, the, the support for um, Israel, which, you know, is completely understandable from, you know, the perspective of, uh, of Zelensky. And, you know, there's also um, people have got to remember many Israelis of Ukrainian origin, not just of Russian, you know, origin there. And um, the Israeli government was, um, you know, very supportive of Ukraine, not politically, but in terms of humanitarian and practical measures in terms of helping people evacuate, taking in, you know, kind of refugees in the early, you know, phases of the war. I think uh, Ukraine doesn't know how to navigate this right now. Mm -hmm. uh, the Ukrainians, you know, kind of part of their foreign policy has not been really focused on these kinds of issues. I, I think that they don't really understand, you know, fully the perspectives of, you know, countries in Africa 
uh, and Asia, because, you know, for their point of view, they were also part of the Soviet Union during this period. It's it's very uncomfortable and difficult for them to put themselves in a, you know, standard European perspective. They were not a colonial power, and they find it very hard to uh, understand the rage and resentment of the global south, because they feel that they are the underdog as well. And you know, it's been hard enough for Kiev to try and court the Global South for its support over the last 21 months. This latest edition uh, of conflict in the Middle East makes it much harder. And I guess what I want to push you on a little bit here then, so Biden's linking of the wars in Ukraine and the Middle East, um, clearly for congressional support, but is it going to backfire when it comes to the fate of the war in Ukraine? Well, that's, you know, what I, I just sort of said in passing, good congressional politics, it made a lot of sense, but not good global politics, you know, particularly for um, Ukraine's position. And I think Ukrainians are going to really have a hard time navigating this because, um, you know, there already has been, and Ravi pointed it out, and then, um, you know, the two questions, are, I think, beautifully encapsulated, you know, the dilemma here. Because there's also a feeling um, at the UN General Assembly level, you know, why they have some sympathy or had some sympathy initially, you know, very much so for Ukraine and being predated upon and, you know, the violations of international law. Um, you know, as I said, the United States support has been something of a liability in that regard, because, of course, the United States is not seen as any kind of paragon, you know, virtue for, you know, upholding uh, international law by many, you know, members of uh, the UN General Assembly. But there's also this feeling that there's been a huge diversion of resources away to Ukraine in the war, you know, literally into armaments uh, that could have been otherwise uh, put towards sustainable development goals. You know, debt relief, um, climate uh, change commitments, uh, uh, climate commitments in terms of you know, helping the global south, investment in the global south. I think the challenge for Ukraine is to present itself as an asset for the rest of the world rather than a liability. And right now, um, I would say that other parts of the world see Ukraine as a liability, as yet another war like World War One, World War Two, European war, territorial conflict that they kind of tend to see it, you know, that way, that is having an impact on the rest of the world and distracting away you know, from other issues that now uh, the uh, Middle East upheaval uh, brings our attention uh, back to again. Mm. You know, so we're essentially discussing two arenas of conflict right now uh, on two continents. And I just want to zoom out a little bit further um, and also take China within its span. And now if you imagine or look at the United States engaged in you know, competition with China, which in some senses is its overriding kind of North Star. You have these two conflicts now. And I was hoping you, as someone who's worked uh, at the NSC and, and has all this experience, if you can sort of try and take us, you know, into that kind of a role right now for a minute. And the question then is, you know, can the White House spin all of these plates in the air, uh, so many of them simultaneously? Is America equipped to deal with so many conflicts and crises in the world all at once? Well, look, we might be in terms of our, um, you know, military and strategic uh, capacity and even our economic capacity, notwithstanding, you know, the rising, um, you know, debt. But we're not in terms of our domestic politics. You know, we're going to have another government shutdown on, you know, November 17th, uh, whatever, you know, that, that, that date, uh, that impending date is going to be. 
Um, you know, we, we, we've gone through how many you know iterations of trying to find a speaker. Now we have you know someone um, in place who you know definitely might have a very different agenda in mind than one that would be conducive uh, to having you know the United States play a major leadership role. You know, I think our domestic uh, divisions and friction and infighting suggests that we're not capable of doing this. And it could because part of it, again, gets back to perceptions. The rest of the world is looking at the United States. And no matter how much, you know, many of the uh, governments uh, uh, may kind of feel that they see a lot of competence um, in the current administration and in the team around President Biden. And, you know, they've really spent a lot of uh, attention to the, you know, multilateral affairs and to, you know, bilateral relationships. They don't believe that the United States has the staying power um, in its domestic politics. Everybody asks the question, and I'm sure there's probably some questions in there, you know, in, uh, from uh, subscribers about 2024. Um, and, you know, what's going to happen? And will the United States, you know, kind of just degenerate into, you know, um, again, complete and utter discord and uh, disarray? Because, you know, we, we haven't really gone beyond all of that. And well, that let's go really, there, Fiona, I, I was thinking that's very important because it's very important for our abilities to be able to handle, you know, three plus crises all at once because domestic um, resilience is a very important part of that. And so within that, I mean, let's let's talk about 2024. I mean, it's it's hard to imagine 2024 when we have a potential government shutdown on our hands in the next few weeks. But But assuming one gets past that and into 2024, What's at stake with the the presidential election? And as you watch um, candidates on the Republican side um, discuss and air out their views of America's role in the world and specifically America's role in Ukraine, you know, how do you see all of that playing out? It's really about American credibility and leadership. I mean, even if all of us wanted to isolate ourselves from the rest of the world, um, and you know, basically stick um, to George Washington's admonitions about foreign entanglements. We couldn't. I mean, the rest of the world is going to affect us one way or another, be it on you know internal agricultural commodity prices, you know our ability to export goods. Um, you know, we'd be a taker, you know, rather than a um, you know demander or you know agenda setter in uh, global affairs. Also, you know, we have made a lot of commitments over time. And, you know, the, the perception of the United States now is uh, an United States commitment is only as good as, you know, kind of one administration. So maybe for two to four years, depending on the way that, you know, congressional politics plays out. We made a commitment to Ukraine, whether people like it or not, back in 1994 uh, with the Budapest um, Accord. We very vaguely call this assurances, but the translations into Russian and um, Ukrainian were a little bit more emphatic, you know, than that about guarantees for Ukraine's territorial integrity and sovereignty if it gave up nuclear weapons. And this is one area where this really does matter for our security. The Russians are flirting now with um, nuclear testing. They did a virtual test just the other day. Uh, they have de-ratified the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. Russia um, has tried to play with uh, the whole nuclear issue every which way that it can. It's been restrained so far, uh, not just by us, but by China and India and other countries that do not want Russia to cross a, a nuclear threshold in the war in Ukraine with tactical nukes, because that would affect all of their you know, different calculations and the strategic balances uh, in their regions as well. But, you know, Putin has shown himself to be a full-on nuclear menace. The Zaporizhia nuclear plant, uh, moving through the Chernobyl uh, nuclear zone, and now, you know, this kind of threats about um, testing. Uh, and it, it basically sends a message to the rest of the world, 
that you need to be engaged in a nuclear arms race. You need one for your own protection. Ukraine should never have given up its nuclear weapons under the kind of scenarios we're looking at now. And of course, that was important for the United States not to have loose nukes. Or, um, you know, other uh, countries uh, might think that they would like to have a nuclear weapon so they can bully their neighbours. Because Putin is a combination of Kim Jong-un and, you know, every other kind of, you know, nuclear bully or rogue power that one can think of here. So this does not enhance US security by pulling ourselves out of um, those larger strategic uh, considerations. We can't just sort of retreat, pull up uh, the drawbridges and hope the rest of uh, the world goes away. Uh, and our leadership, you know, has been a very important perceptions that the United States has got its act together, which, you know, have uh, been, you know, very much dinted. We may not be the indispensable power that, um, you know, we used to be in the past, as Madeleine Albright and others, you know, have uh, described us. Uh, but we uh, do actually have uh, still some real impact and our leadership, you know, has still counted for things and, and countries do still, even if they rail against us, they do still look to us to set trends. And if we're setting a trend of discord, disunity, disarray, well, that's what we're going to be seeing playing out in many other uh, arenas as well. And that's going to come back to hurt us and it will hurt our economy you know, as well. We didn't quite get to the China point because we got a bit distracted by something that I said there. But the Chinese are also, you know, trying to figure out how to navigate all of this. I, I think to some degree, President Xi feels set up by Putin on the special military operation, wasn't so special, <laughs> become a full on war. And, uh, you know, but it's not that Xi had an axe to grind with Ukraine. But if uh, the res resolving the war um, on, you know, Ukraine's terms, helps boost the United States, you know, it's, it's as much a proxy war with China in the way that our rhetoric uh, has laid this out of China's watching as it is, you know, seen in some quarters as a proxy war with Russia. So China doesn't really have an incentive you know, sort of help have a sensible resolution to this conflict and find, you know, a, a workable end game here. They don't want perhaps Putin to completely win, but they don't want him certainly to lose and they'll keep on, you know, propping Russia up one way or another, even if they're not actively supporting them with weapons in the way that North Korea and Iran are. And then in the case of the Middle East, I mean, this is uh, potentially a bit of a disaster for China as well, to be frank, because China has relied on the Middle East very heavily for oil um, supplies. And China wants to have more prosperity in the Middle East. The whole meltdown of the Middle East isn't good for China at all. And China may try to play in the way that Russia has the champion of the dispossessed and the downtrodden, but China's also getting a backlash to it as the new sort of colonial power in Africa and elsewhere by, you know, exploiting uh, natural resources, bringing in Chinese workers. We know there's been a backlash, you know, against China there. And we've seen China also having to extricate its nationals from, you know, war zones in the past. And I don't think China kind of feels that comfortable also, you know, as a country that has its own minorities, including Muslim minorities internally, with the, the kind of the way that things are trending there. But again, China won't want to really help out the United States. But China did play, of course, an important role in the late stages of the Saudi-Yemeni-Iranian uh, rapprochement, at least over Yemen. So I don't know how, you know, China is going to play this now. China would want to be seen as kind of a mediator and a peacemaker. But I don't think in the ways that Putin is probably reveling in the mayhem, that China really has that same feeling. They are more of a status quo power than they are a kind of a revolutionary, let's stir things up and wear their head power. So, I mean, for me, the bottom line, you know, kind of putting aside our own great concerns about China, 
is that if we want to be able to manage this, we do have to take the temperature of the relationship with China down, which I think is something that we've been moving towards. If we look like we're barreling towards a fallout conflict uh, with China uh, at this present moment as well, this could be uh, and is likely to be much more than we can handle. Fiona Hill, what a fantastic tour of the world. Uh, thank you so much for your insights. No, thank you so much. And those were great questions uh, from the, the subscribers. I think they really framed the dilemmas that we're facing very clearly. We have the best subscribers in the world. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thanks a lot. And that was Fiona Hill, a former senior director for Europe and Russia on the National Security Council. Next week, Ehud Barak. He's the former Prime Minister of Israel, a former Army Chief and Defense Minister, and that country's most decorated soldier ever. He's also a former guest on this program. He will join me to discuss, at length, Israel's plan to root out Hamas. That's it for this week. I'm Ravi Agrawal. I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make, 
to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador. Coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.